Across the globe, 2,800 dedicated soldiers and civilians at 23 locations in 11 time zones stand ready. This is SMDC. Welcome back to the High Ground Studio, home of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Alan Meeks. Alan made the critical mistake of doing a good job on a podcast segment last month, so I've roped him into co-hosting with me this month. <laughs> Lucky me. We've got another full episode for you this month where we'll be talking about an award-winning multinational SATCOM team. We'll be exploring a connection between Lieutenant General Carbler and Major League Baseball. I get the opportunity to learn about what it's like being an aide to a three-star general with Ron in the Cool Job segment. And we'll be bringing you the first of First Sergeant Sagan's multi-segment series on the history of rockets and missiles in the SMDC History Moment. So stick around. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. It's June 2021, and this is Episode 8. Alan and I are here in the high ground studio at Redstone Arsenal. So for this first clip, we're going to turn it over to Sergeant First Class Ronstad in Colorado Springs, where we'll learn about how a team from the U.S. Army SATCOM Brigade won an award for their idea in a competition among other SATCOM professionals throughout the DOD. Let's dive right in. You'll get that joke in a minute, I promise. After months of collaboration, the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command Team from the U.S. Army Satellite Operations Brigade, SATOPS for short, who took first place in December for their concepts designed during the Develop, Innovate, Visualize, and Execute competition, is now ready to implement their idea. DIVE is a product of the Designing Space Innovation event sponsored by Air University with U.S. Space Command. The inaugural five-week event, which ran November 10th to December 18th, posed the question, how do we develop space warfighting leaders to service members from the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Space Force, U.S. Army, and allied nations? The competition fosters creativity in developing a product that cultivates leadership among warfighters from multiple service branches. Six teams competed for an opportunity to win $10,000 toward prototyping their concepts for real-world implementation. The SATOPS team is composed of four officers, two of which are in the Royal Australian Air Force, stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado, as part of the Wideband Global Satellite Communications Program, which sees Australian sailors, soldiers, and airmen assigned to stations in Hawaii and Colorado, supporting various headquarters and operations centers responsible for the WGS satellite constellation. Their first place idea, called Dynamic Space Warfighting Teams, proposes to replace the traditional military organizational structure with teams brought together on demand from workforce pools based on mission needs, individual skills, and leadership development objectives. Captain Jimmy Reichard, the SATOPS Brigade S2 intelligence officer and dive team member, broke the idea down into layman's terms. Um, so essentially think of it as a, a LinkedIn or as a, a Facebook or any type of media outlet that a leader can get into and build a dynamic team rapidly to solve a specific problem. He knew the competition was stiff, but had no idea they would take first place. Um, I'm not exactly sure why we got first place. I think, um, you know, throughout the competition, everyone had great ideas. Um, the, the Lieutenant Colonel Planter that was in charge of the competition, you know, constantly stressed the, throughout the six-week seminar that 
they were looking for something bold, something new, and I think that's what got us first place. Is it was very bold. Um, it would change construct of of teaming and staff work at the highest level. And how can you elaborate on that and exactly how this is going to benefit, say, units in the army? Units in the army, absolutely. Um, if they're having a, a space-related issue, you know, say during a, a crisis phase, for example, um, under a certain combatant command, the folks that are tracking that space issue would then utilize this program to resolve it rapidly. The the premise of it is the right people in the right place at the right time, um, and since we're so geographically dispersed, um, space experts are few and far between when it comes to certain specific events. Um, there has to be a way to bring folks together rapidly to fix these issues and not do, you know, four months of emails. So it's essentially a database of space personnel that you can call on in order for like a quick turnaround in order to get a team together? That's well, yeah, essentially. Uh, you can think of it as a, a personnel management database for something like this or um, you, you can think of it um, yeah, as we envision, you know, on LinkedIn, as you get certain skills or certain um, accommodations, they'll, they'll be tracked on there as well. Um, and then when the team is put together and done, the the action they perform will then be recorded um, in there. So when you're looking for a member going through CVs, like, oh, this guy's already worked on this problem. He did it three months ago. The results said, you know, performed, you know, above, you know, well. So, okay, boom, I'll tap him or her and, and drive on. In addition to the immediate effect of an agile team focused on a specific problem, dynamic teaming over time will develop leadership and technical skills more rapidly and with greater flexibility. Flight Lieutenant Lee Ligtermote of the Royal Australian Air Force, one of the SATOPS dive team members, shared with me what their idea was about and his role on the team. The program really revolves around um, developing leaders but also um, making teams more effective. So the idea uh, is to, to have individuals um, that form workforce pools uh, and they're selected uh, by people who are looking to form teams uh, to meet specific uh, skill requirements uh, or meet mission objectives. My role on the team uh, was to bring together um, the presentation uh, and to deliver the presentation along with Captain James Ricard uh, and we were able to um, deliver that to the uh, Space Command group as well as all the Delta leadership uh, and we were able to be successful uh, in winning the competition with our idea. Colonel Stephen Parrish, commander of the SATOPS Brigade, was impressed with the team. Really proud of the team, really proud that the SATOPS Brigade one came out on top. Uh, especially with the audience of uh, people voting and uh, you know represents not only the brigade but the SMBC uh, very well uh, across the across the force. The team is in the final development stage of the idea but hopes to propose it a couple months from now to US Space Command for final approval. Reporting from Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado Springs, Colorado, this is Sergeant First Class Aaron Ronstadt. I think this concept is awesome. Having a searchable database with experts from all branches and even other partner nations is a game changer. Instead of being stuck in email hell, finding the right SATCOM experts could just be a few clicks away. I agree, Alan. Although they didn't specify, it also sounds like these specifically customized problem-solving teams 
don't even have to be in the same location, the same unit, or even in the same branch of the military for that matter. Well, above all, our congratulations to that team. I'd love to see if their award-winning idea becomes a reality. Changing gears for a second. Alan, are you a baseball fan? <laughs> well, uh, I know someone who is a baseball fan, more specifically a Milwaukee Brewers fan, and that's Lieutenant General Daniel Carbler. That's right. Our very own Mr. Baseball, General Carbler, was able to throw out the first pitch at a Brewers game on Memorial Day and also got to talk with the original Mr. Baseball, Bob Euchre, as he was calling plays during the sixth inning. You know, Ron, it was also interesting to learn that General Carbler has a long-standing relationship with Bob Euchre that partly stems from a mutual acquaintanceship with General Carbler's former high school baseball coach who also worked for the Brewers with Euchre. Are you starting to fight a little bit of a cold there, Alan? What's going on? You sound a little sniffly today. Well, I've got two kids in school, so you know how that goes. I do indeed, although mine are grown up now. Anyway, uh, we've had to edit this significantly for the sake of time here on the podcast, but let's listen to some of the highlights of that conversation. We go to the sixth inning here at American Family Field and back into call it for you with a special guest. Here's Bob Euchre. All right, Lane, thank you very much. And Harold Castro will lead things off for Detroit. We're talking about Lieutenant General Dan Carbler, who has been a longtime friend of ours. He's back home with family and friends. Um, threw out a first pitch today and uh, we'll be heading for Nashville to join our AAA club. <laughs> uh, Lane Grindle has met Dan Carbler. We've uh, been together on numerous occasions. Right now, Corbin Burns for Castro and the opening pitch. A little bit high and away. It's one ball and no strikes. Dan good to have you here and um, um, we've known each other for quite a while now and you're a Wisconsin native and one of your uh, other good friends swinging a foul or is it yep it is it's a ball and a strike now um, you had connections with the Brewers through our official score. Would that be right? You, you got it. Yeah. Timmy O'Driscoll was uh, <laughs> my uh, high school baseball coach there at Arrowhead High School in Heartland. <laughs> Taught me everything I knew. That's why that first pitch was, uh, I think I was in the low 90s. <laughs> one ball and one strike. Ah, it's great to have you here. And of course, as I said earlier, we've known each other for a number of years. And thank you for your service. Check swinging the ball down alone inside. It's two and one now um, for your service and uh, your family. You're now in um, Huntsville, Alabama. That's that's right. You just a little south of Nashville. So it's an easy trip for me if the Brewers need me up in triple A. <laughs> <laughs> two balls and a strike. It is uh, always good to see you. And uh, we met we met uh, General Carbler. I'm going to call him Dan. I'm out of the military now in my Reserve time is up. My guard unit gets called up. I'll be in trouble. I'm sure you called all the generals by their first name anyways. <laughs> two balls and two strikes. But uh, yeah we met a few years back in Washington and uh, Dan was nice enough to come up in the booth at that time and we've been friends ever since and um, high and wide it's three balls and two strikes and having him here today he's leaving and going back to Alabama tomorrow so to uh, have him here today and throw out the first pitch 
and uh, get a chance to visit and bring him upstairs and see him again is always a big plus for us. And it is still a full count three and two. So the military everything's still all right. We're doing great. Uke. Uh, COVID did not set us back at all in our job. You know it's 24 7 We're right. doing missile warnings satellite communications and missile defense and we can't afford to take a day off. So we, we, we've done just fine. The American public should be very proud of the soldiers and civilians for space and missile defense command what we've been doing. I, I've told you this before I I I meant every word of it too. had it not been for baseball or able to play I would have stayed in the military. I enjoyed the military and um, I still do to this day and uh, am involved with the military anytime anytime they need anything from me man I'm on board and um, Lane Grindle all of us up here feel the same and to honor each and every day at each and every game somebody from the military is big time with us. Well, you, we sure appreciate your uh, time as a as a veteran and your visits out to Walter Reed when you got a chance to go to D.C. to see our wounded warriors out there. I know it always made uh, their day for you and the members of the Brewers to come out and visit them. Your uh, your title now, Dan, as you uh, head back to Alabama is. I'm the uh, commander for U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command and the Joint Functional Component Command for Integrated Missile Defense. So I'm the boss for basically all Army space and Army missile defense. Well I'm going to ask you something and that's why I wanted you to say it so everybody can hear it. But uh, yeah the reason I asked uh, you guys are on Mars now. Um, I'm looking for a ride. I did I did the 128th refueling run here a couple of years ago. So my next request and I don't know I want to get you before you opt out. Um, you're the head guy. I really would like to if you can fix it up the pitch low and away it's one ball and no strikes. What do you think about Mars you no problem you just tell me you want a window or aisle seat and we'll, uh, we'll hook I'll, you up. I, I, you want to come back right. Oh yeah I want to come back. Okay, I don't nice. yeah I don't want to stay. <laughs> Now that took about six months I think right. Yeah that's a that's a that's a long trip. That's well a... I know it is so if we do it after the season I'd be back for spring training. <laughs> yeah you've moved up too since we last saw you. You're uh, you're you're major major big time now. I, I got that I got that extra star but <laughs> if I keep promising you flights to Mars <laughs> the army might take a couple stars away. <laughs> Two balls on a strike. But um, the the program down in Alabama um, Dan runs I'm doing a little recruiting job here too uh, runs 24 hours every day right it, it does 24 7 365 and you know, you're talking about recruiting we're doing the Army National Hiring Days right now so if you're out there in the audience and you like uh, science technology engineering or math and you have that proclivity. We run some of the most technological systems in the Department of Defense and Space and Missile Defense Command so we'd love to have you go check out Army National Hiring Days. I'm uh, I'm in with that. We'll if, waiver you. You we indeed. can give you the waiver. <laughs> <laughs> and we get to uh, visit with Dan Carbler and thanks for stopping in pal. Great to see you have a great ride back to Alabama and, and uh, 
Good luck down the road. We'll be we'll be seeing each other again. I know that. Sounds great. You thanks to you and Lane for uh, having me up in the booth, and uh, and thanks to the Brewers for uh, what they do on Military Appreciation Day, as as remember those who went before us. Absolutely. You bet. Ron, Bob is a consummate professional. He's keeping track of player and game stats, outs, balls, runs, adding in details about the team, while at the same time having a conversation with General Carbler. That's wild. Oh, it is absolutely amazing. He's a master. And, you know, some days it seems like I can hardly walk and chew gum at the same time. And, of course, the CG, a master of weaving that army messaging during the conversation, but keeping it lighthearted. And although I'm not sure the army is looking to send folks to Mars in our lifetime, that being more of a NASA thing, I'm wondering if we couldn't help the CG make that connection for Bob with some of the Army soldiers who've been identified to go to the moon. From baseball to history, next up, our own first Sergeant Steve Sagan brings up part of his series in the history of rockets and missiles in the SMDC History Minute. Welcome to the SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Today's topic, rockets. The U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command develops and provides current and future global space, missile defense, and high-altitude capabilities to the Army, Joint Force, and our allies and partners. Having the ability to provide early detection of a missile attack protect the nation and the warfighter from threats from above. But where did this need for missile defense come from? The historical evidence for the first rockets points to China. In 1232, when the Mongols laid siege to the city of Kaifeng, capital of Honan province, the Chinese defenders used weapons that were described as arrows of flying fire. Although the historical texts are vague as to the exact way these arrows flew, they make no mention about bows or any other means as to how they were launched. With the advent of gunpowder around the same time, scholars have concluded that these may have been rockets. In the same century, rockets appeared in Europe. There is evidence that the Mongols used rockets at the Battle of Legnica, Poland in 1241. On the other side of the European continent, invading Arabs are reported to have used rockets on the Iberian Peninsula in 1249. Rockets continued to be used in battle, but it wasn't until 500 years later in the 18th century that things changed. In India, Prince Hadar Ali took the next step and developed war rockets with an important change, the use of metal cylinders to contain the combustion powder. These rockets had a hammered soft iron casing and had a higher bursting strength than earlier paper-constructed rockets. This development led to the creation of the Congreve rocket, an artillery rocket developed by Sir William Congreve first used in 1806. It was an improvement over the rockets used by Hadar. Congreve rockets varied in weight from 25 to 60 pounds and could carry either an incendiary or anti-personnel warhead. This stick-guided rocket had a range of one half to two miles depending upon its size. This rocket was used by the British and Americans during the War of 1812. It was the Congreve rockets bursting during the Battle of Fort McHenry that created the rocket's red glare, inspiring Francis Scott Key to compose the Star-Spangled Banner. 
For the next 100 years, rocket technology advanced, and they became a standard weapon on the modern battlefield. But that's the story for the next episode. Tune in next month to learn how rocket technology developed during the First and Second World Wars. This has been an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for listening. Another very well done piece by First Sergeant Sagan there. I enjoy his history pieces. And for the record, although First Sergeant has been in the Army for quite a long time, he wasn't actually part of these efforts in China and India back then. <laughs> Big oof. First Sergeant Sagan had a list with one name on it. Now there's two. Well, the list is short, but distinguished. Moving along, we're going to go to the highlight of our show, the cool job segment. Earlier this week, Alan and I got to talk to Major Ryan Enix, aide-de-camp to Lieutenant General Carbler, about what it's like to be an aide and what it took to become one. Hello, everyone. I'm Alan Meeks with the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command at Redstone Arsenal with another SMDC cool job segment for the High Ground Podcast. Today... Beetle and I are fortunate to have in the studio with us Major Ryan Enix, aide-de-camp to Lieutenant General Daniel Carbler, Commanding General for the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command, for more insight on the roles aides play in the everyday life of senior commanders. Aide-de-camp is a French expression literally meaning helper in the camp, inference being a military camp, a personal assistant or secretary to a person of high rank, not to be confused with an adjutant or executive officer who serve more in an administrative role. In the Army, they're assigned to general officers and have a distinctive insignia based on the position of the officer they support. A brigadier general uh, will require a first lieutenant. A major general will have a captain as their aide. A lieutenant general, a major, and correspondingly, a four-star general will have a lieutenant colonel as their aide. Major Enix, thanks for being with us this morning. Well, thanks, Ron. Glad I could take some time out of our hectic travel schedule to be with you here today. Okay, Ryan, tell me a little bit about your background and how that eventually led to you becoming an aide-de-camp for Lieutenant General Carbler. Basically, what was your uh, bio from your college or your commissioning point to the last duty assignment you had uh, before you were selected as an aide? Sure, Ron. Well, so I was commissioned in 2009 from the University of Tampa, and I was designated a military police officer. Uh, From there, my first duty assignment was at Fort Stewart, Georgia. I served there for about four years. Uh, Following that, I got selected to attend the Marine Corps Expeditionary Warfare School uh, for about a year at Quantico Marine Corps Base. Uh, During that assignment, that's when I was selected to be a Space Operations Officer, or an FA-40. And then following that assignment, uh, I went out to Colorado Springs to the 1st Space Brigade. Um, I was in one of our space attachments there for about three years, uh, then was selected to be the HHC Commander for SMDC Headquarters, and subsequently PCS to Redstone Arsenal. So I've been at Redstone Arsenal since about 2017, uh, did about two years in the company command. Uh, and then from there, I was uh, working in the commander's action group here at uh, the headquarters when I got to be selected uh, for General Carbler's aid. So how specifically did you get selected? They can't direct you into that type of job. So did you volunteer? Did someone ask if you'd like to be considered? How did that all work? I assume Lieutenant General Carbler himself had a large part in that final determination. Well, it's funny you mentioned, Alan, that you can't be directed into a job. Apparently, you haven't been around the Army long enough because uh, we've, all had, uh, we've all had jobs that we did not necessarily want, and we, we go to where the Army wants us. Uh, but specifically for this job, uh, because the transition time between Lieutenant General Dickinson, the previous commander, and Lieutenant General Carbler was, was pretty quick, uh, there was not a normal selection process. 
Um, I'd been serving here for about two and a half years, so I had kind of an on-the-job selection process with uh, with General Dickinson. And uh, on a Friday afternoon, riding down the elevator with him, uh, out of nowhere, he says, "Hey, uh, Ryan, you're going to be uh, General Carbler's aide. Uh, good luck." So that, that that's how the selection process happened for me. But again, a very very atypical selection process. So there I was. <laughs> that's how a lot of good stories in the Army start. Anyway, so what attributes, assuming that you have many of those, I mean, you were selected after all, but what attributes do you think selection boards or committees look at uh, or look for when selecting or recommending an aide-de-camp to a general officer? So with any type of nominative job in the Army, uh, the number one thing that they're looking for is your past performance history. Uh, so there are, usually your assignment officer will, will look at your past evaluations and determine whether you've had a successful career thus far. And a lot of it comes down to your success you've had in your key developmental assignments, your, your key, key jobs that you had for each of your ranks. So, so performance is really the number one thing. The second thing, believe it or not, really comes down to word of mouth. Uh, because this job is, is so personal in nature and you're working so closely with a, with a general officer, um, your reputation typically precedes you. Um, and, and word of mouth is usually how that nomination process gets started. Additionally, as part of the selection process, because you're working so closely with a general officer, I think it's really important that your personalities mesh well because you're going to be sending, spending so much time together with that, that general. Uh, what are some of the common misconceptions about what aides like yourself do? Can you dispel some of the myths about your job? Are you like cooking for the general and washing his car? Yeah, Alan. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of our perceptions about aide-de-camps are uh, shaped by our perception that we see uh, on, on TV or in the movies. Um, it does take a village to take care of a general officer, but luckily I've got an entire front office st staff that helps me, helps me do that. Um, I, I don't wash his car. Um, I don't do his laundry. I don't cook for him, but we do have Sergeant First Class Dinah Galt, his enlisted aide, who is a world-class chef who does uh, help prepare some meals for him for, for special occasions. It sounds like there could be some confusion as to what the expectations actually might be of the duties and services of an aide. Yes, but luckily there are Army regulations and joint ethics regulations, which outlines both the duties of the aide-de-camp, the enlisted aide, and the rest of the front office staff that keeps everybody uh, un understanding what their duties and responsibilities are. So in this role, are you also a little bit of a filter about who has access, those askers, taskers? You know, do you serve as kind of a sounding board for ideas that he wants to try? Yeah, so one of the more personal things in my responsibilities is being that personal confidant or that sounding board for the CG. Uh, very often he's got ideas that he wants to run somebody, by somebody and I'll give him my honest opinion. And additionally, sometimes even a three-star general needs to vent and, and I can be that, that person and that outlet for him as well. Okay, so if a young officer who's listening to this podcast, they're thinking they would like to be an aide to a general officer sometime in their career, what advice would you give them? How can they best position themselves at least for a good chance of being selected. So what I'll tell any junior officer that's looking for their next assignment, focus on your current assignment and do well in it. As with any job in the Army, your current performance uh, will say will speak volumes about, about you and your potential. Um, if you're interested in becoming an aide-de-camp, um, you need to hit those benchmarks for all of your key developmental assignments for your rank. Uh, do well in those assignments. But if you're looking to become an aide, um, I would say talk to some other individuals that you know that have been aide-de-camps. Uh, your experience with uh, each individual general officer can vary. Uh, try to get to know the, the general officer that you could potentially be interviewing for, understanding their personalities and understanding what they would want out of the job. 
But again, it really just comes down to uh, to doing what the Army's asking you to do and doing it well, and it'll set you up for success in the future. Sir, I've got to ask, it's the title of the segment, what's cool about your job and what motivates you? Even if what motivates you is not necessarily the cool part of your job. Well, Alan, I'll tell you, what motivates me every day is coming to work and having probably one of the best bosses I've ever had to work for. He is absolutely a fantastic individual, uh, and I can tell you from personal experience, uh, what you everybody else here in the SMDC community sees um, is 100% true Lieutenant General Carbler. So having a great boss uh, makes it easy to come uh, to work every day. And additionally, like I said, we've got a great staff here at SMDC. The front office staff is fantastic to work for. And then I get to get out and see all the rest of the, the SMDC and JIFIC IMD team. Uh, fantastic people to work for. And I've made you know some lifelong uh, friendships uh, being able to, to travel and meet all these people. The cool part, though, we, we do get to travel the world and get to see some cool places. Uh, just this last week, we're up in Milwaukee where uh, Lieutenant General Carbler got to throw out the first pitch at a Milwaukee Brewers game. And uh, getting to sit up in the broadcast booth with Mr. Baseball Bob Euchre, it doesn't get any cooler than that. Hey, and there you have it. Major Enix, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day. I understand you're jumping right out of here to fly off to Washington, D.C. to support General Carbler's testimony for the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. Good luck and safe travels to the both of you. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate you having me here and being able to talk about uh, the glorious life of an aide-de-camp. Uh, thanks so much for everything that you guys are doing. Secure the high ground. Well, Alan, that about does it for Episode 8. What do we have coming up for our listeners between now and the next monthly episode? SMDC's Lieutenant General Carbler is scheduled to testify before the House and Senate Armed Services Committee later this month. Of course, June 14th is the Army birthday, so check out our social media for ways we'll be celebrating that across the command. And this week, June 7th through 11th, SMDC soldiers from across the globe will vie for the title of SMDC's Best Warrior at Fort Carson, Colorado. And we'll be covering a change of command at Fort Greeley, Alaska for the 49th Missile Defense Battalion. Isn't the incoming commander a good friend of yours, Ron? Yes, that's right. Lieutenant Colonel Chris Stutz, a good, close, personal friend of mine. He and I go way back in the GMD world. Looking forward to seeing him taking up that vital post. We're done. Alan, thanks so much for joining this month. I had a good time working with you as always. Me too. And you know, Ron, I had a ton of fun. And as always, I learned a lot in speaking with the different folks across the command. For our listeners, to find out the latest on SMDC soldiers and units around the globe while maintaining proper OPSEC procedures here at Redstone and at our 23 other locations across 11 different time zones, check out our webpage at www.smdc.army.mil for links to our social media and podcast. Yes, with social media, always be sure to follow proper OPSEC protocols. From the High Ground Studio at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, I'm Ronald Bailey. <laughs> and I'm Alan Meeks. Thanks for listening. This is SMDC. SMDC.